Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Bowie Global. Uh, I'm here for a fascinating episode, w- welcomed by Simon De La Riviere and Trent McConaughey. Simon and Trent, can you please introduce yourselves? Thanks for having us, it's great. So I'm Simon, I've been in the blockchain space now for quite a while, most sort of recently started developing since 2013, and then in twenty beginning of 2015 started working in earnestly with Consensus. And at Consensus, I was one of the first few employees. And since then, in early 2015, I've worked on a bunch of projects in this space from helping design the ERC-20 token standard to thinking of new kinds of token economic models to where I spend most of my time these days working on a project called Ujo Music, which is, you know, bringing the blockchain to the music industry. And I'm a full stack developer. So I just, you know, I do whatever is necessary to make things happen. Awesome. How about you, Trent? Yeah, hi, really, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. My background, I spent almost two decades doing AI, um, AI for machine creativity, AI for helping drive Moore's Law with computer chip design, that sort of thing. And I uh, got into the blockchain space really heavily about, starting about five years ago with IP on the blockchain uh, called Describe, and then that worked morphed into BigchainDB, which is a, a blockchain database. And more recently, we've expanded on, um, and been working also on Ocean, which is about shifting from data silos to democratizing data, sharing data to make it more accessible to the planet. And along the way, have a lot of side interests and stuff in, in crypto and AI and the intersection, everything from like AI DAOs to, you know, token models, token engineering, this sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a fun space to be part of and interacting with, with awesome people like Simon to, you know, help just grow this field together. You guys have written about a bunch of topics, so we're going to we're gonna cover a few of them. One is art DAOs. Talk a little bit about what what those are and why they're important. You know, Simon and I were both actually thinking, you know, this goes back about at least two years. Um, we'd both been thinking a lot about, you know, how does AI relate to blockchain and so on. And one day when Simon was in Berlin hanging out uh, over drinks with myself and Greg McMullen, we kind of started riffing and ended up with this idea of, you know, AI DAOs, which is AIs, uh, you know, can be an AI type agent or something even dumber, but living on a decentralized substrate, you know, a smart contract platform like Ethereum and what that might mean, you know, is sort of this AI that um, just kind of runs around sort of like a smart computer virus or benevolent computer virus. And, and then, you know, what are specific examples of that? One, one that emerged was this idea of the art DAO where it basically can uh, generate art automatically using, you know, like technologies like genetic programming or deep learning. And uh, with that, sell it to uh, say online crypto platforms like Open Bazaar. And then with that, it can accumulate wealth over time and get, you know, wealthier and wealthier. And it's simply this smart contract that's accumulating wealth over time. And uh, there's lots of riffs on this, like lots of directions. You can generalize it to like self-evolve its code and and take this whole idea to, you know, self-owned assets, all of this uh, much more broadly. So, but, you know, the ArtDAO is, is really kind of a cool launching point and it ties to interests of mine, you know, going back in the art world and and uh, Simon and others. Uh, so um, it, it's just a really kind of cool thing to sort of sink um, your teeth into as a, as an initial way to sort of explore the technology of, you know, DAOs and AI together in in kind of a fun way. Yeah. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Trent, I think, I think we got to this topic initially because during that time, it was when the DAO uh, came about. And I think we were, 
like wondering like how to improve the sort of decision making process of the DAO. And one of the one of the ways she thought could be done was where the voting or the decision making was shifted towards the edges of the network. So you know the token holders wouldn't be like people. It would actually be some AI and then people would delegate their votes to an AI and this AI would be making decisions for people. And then it's like kind of spiraled from there and then we started thinking about other ways to combine those ideas together. I think that, that that's how it came about. But yeah, the, the art that thing is really, it's, it's a really interesting idea. And I think since then, I think the first article was, first articles we published or like you wrote most of it and I added an addendum. You know, there's different variations and I think back then I published a version which used like prediction markets and then you could even use things like TrueBits to verify like some more like deeper generative artwork but then over time I, I came to realize I could actually simplify it to a sort of simple version and I published the idea for this autonomous artist in sort of a, a, a very specific implementation at the end of 2017 and this was just very like very simplistic uh, version and then at the during this time, you know, I was, I was like hoping because I basically made the whole blueprint pub- public. I was just hoping someone would come out and build it because I was still spending most of my time doing other work. And because no one else just took the blueprint and ran with it, I two weekends ago I decided, you know what, I'm just gonna throw this up and get up and just make start writing tasks and start just you know submitting bounties for the work to be done and. Surprisingly, a bunch of people got quite excited about it. There's like four, four people have already contributed to writing the code and I've been spending my, my evenings and weekends trying to like break down the tasks. And the general gist of this is essentially a, there's a generator and this is, this is very well known in the, in like digital art, just like a generative artwork. You have some deterministic input that always produces the same output, but it's generative art. And then what happens is that generative art uses the block hash as an input and every day it sells a piece of artwork and then the the way this generator changes is you can buy into the art the autonomous artist and then use a token to change the generator and then using this token as well you can participate in in the revenue that this artist makes using curve bonding mechanism so it, over time the goal or gist is that it will just produce better or better artwork and incentivize people to produce better generators over time. And I think the reason why it took off now is just like the timing is right. I think with the collectibles and ERC-721 being finalized, people are excited about also now exploring digital collectibles more more specifically in the art space and, and also due to this new crypto economic model. So I'm excited people have started contributing. So we'll see where this goes. Yeah, to me, it's actually kind of fascinating, like, sort of the time, you know, sometimes there's great ideas or technology, but, you know, the, the just time has to be right, right? And, you know, even when Bitcoin came out in the one year, two years, three years following Bitcoin, there's a lot of ideas on Reddit and stuff about various th- directions that things can go, but it was just way too early, you know. You know, even when we started building Ascribe in 2013, we were building on top of Bitcoin, and it was a pretty hard slog to get any sort of interesting functionality at all. Uh, and, you know, that was, you know, digital art. And then, but, you know, rewind, you know, nine months or so and CryptoKitties comes along, taking some of those ideas, but building on Ethereum, which is much lower friction. And then some, you know, token standards like, um, for NFTs, like non-fungible tokens, et cetera. And that just made it much more uh, straightforward. And, and then now, you know, even the, from the idea of a couple of years ago of the art DAOs to now, the technology has improved and lowering the friction and helping improve incentives. And I think, you know, the bonding curve is a wonderful example of that, that, it's, it was maybe the, the missing piece in the puzzle to sort of 
uh, have a really nice set of incentives to help incentives and, and paying appropriate actors in the ecosystem in sort of a clean way, right? Winding curves, you know, Simon, you know, I mean, Simon's humble, but he invented them basically. And it's sort of like every day you turn around and there's some amazing new use for them, right? You know, you can use them to, to uh, sort of as an alternative to a, a classical ICO launch, for example, as well as to like fund charities, et cetera, et cetera. And in this case, uh, for this uh, autonomous project, it's just a very nice, clean fit to, to help make things work together in a, in a nice way. So it's kind of cool how over the years, the ideas are there, but they're getting more and more fleshed out. And it's just mm-hmm. very cool to see that someone took the step. More detail about the bonding group, please. <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to explain this in various ways, so hopefully I can make it simple this time around. But the, oh. the basic gist of a bonding curve is that the goal was always to figure out a way in which people can mint tokens without sort of relying on there being an entity that sells the token to someone else and then captures that. So it's essentially just a smart contract where, let's say in this, in this example, you have Ether, you stake Ether or lock Ether up, and in return, you get new tokens. But the price of the tokens is determined based on how many people have exactly done that, like how many people have staked Ether before. So it's directly related to the current supply of tokens that is in circulation. And the, over time, like if there's more in supply, it's more costlier to mint. And then at any point in time, someone can sell the tokens back for a proportional amount of Ether. But the value of that tokens increases. So if you bought in early and you sell later, then your extra token that you bought from this bonding curve is worth more and vice versa. If you bought in later and many people have sold, then your token is worth less. So it, it, there, there's different ways to describe this. I mean, if you're from like traditional finance world, you could just say it's an automated market maker with like a specific way in which the price is determined, but it's all just hard coded. And this can be used in many, many different ways. And the, I just think uh, one of the reasons why I, I like did this was precisely that reason. Just I, I felt there was the reason why we had these separate entities that were doing the work of buying and selling tokens and selling it to people just felt very manual. And now that we have the possibility to do this in very automatic ways, why are we setting up these like companies and institutions and whatever to sell tokens when we can just do it automatically? But you know, it's much broader. It could be used in very, very, various different contexts. And one of them is like an autonomous artist. If you want to sort of have really nice price discovery, a really great way is just to, if you have something that's fungible, like, you know, US dollars or bitcoins or whatever, fungible as in as one can be exchanged for the other for the other. That's great, but you need sufficient liquidity, uh, you know, sufficient number of tokens out there, uh, in order to buy a sell, and then you can have an exchange, right? And in exchange, you know, you have this, this order book, this list of people, you know, giving, um, bids and, um, of how, and another bunch of people giving asks, you know, how much do they want to give for a token? How much are they willing to, uh, are, are they willing to pay? Are they willing to sell for, right? And when these things align, then, then, you know, uh, there's, you have a match and people can buy, right? So that's in, in an exchange setting, which is great. You know, that's sort of the ideal. But what if, you know, there's, you, you have just launched a token and there's, you know, hardly any owners of this token, right? How, hardly any buyers or sellers or anything. What do you do? So, the question is, how do you bootstrap from something where there's like, you know, no tokens or only five or 10 tokens minted to having, you know, 10,000 owners and, you know, a million tokens, right? Uh, a bonding curve, you know, via curation market, et cetera. A bonding curve is a really great way to, to bootstrap from, from nothing to, to sort of full liquidity, full depth, et cetera, where you can have an exchange. So um, basically on day zero, you have uh, no owners of the tokens and you just have this curve, right? Where the cost is you know, near zero. And the first person um, buys um, tokens, you know, maybe they spend Ether to get, you know, artist tokens. And, and those artist tokens, you know, maybe they get, for one Ether, they get 
you know, 100 garbage tokens. The next person comes along and they, they have to spend two ether to get 100 garbage tokens. And then it gets more and more expensive. And over time, you know, you've got, say, a thousand people owning artist tokens. And then, you know, you've got sufficient liquidity, et cetera, such that even exchanges can say, hey, you know, this is liquid enough. We're going to list this on an exchange and you can exchange back and forth. So, so suddenly you have, you know, many mechanisms to buy and sell. You know, anyone can go buying and selling these on a traditional exchange. But it's always going to be, you're always going to have this one agent in there that this is robot will buy and sell for a particular price, right? According to this automatic curve. Right. So, uh, you know, these blinding curves are a really great way to kickstart a market, basically, based on sort of supply and demand. And if that thing ever wanes in popularity, then it will just basically you only have this, this blinding curve, curve left and it can drive back down to zero, for example, even, right? And this is one point that that's one of the, the, the things that I wanted to see as well with the design of tokens in this new industry that we're in is that the tokens should have a way for them to naturally dissolve, like not this concept of there being a zombie token that just everyone just kind of forgets about it, and then it's just kind of there forever. But bonding curves is a natural tendency that if people aren't interested anymore, they just start back and always leave with something, even if it's very little. But they can always leave with something. The token and the token project can naturally dissolve if there's no more interest in it. Yeah, and kind of related thing, right? Like this is idea of burning and minting, and normally it has to be done manually. It's pretty like burning is actually kind of tedious feeling. But on this curve, you know, every time someone wants to buy, say, more artist tokens for ether, then there, there's actually more tokens getting minted. And every time they sell on the bonding curve, then those tokens are getting burned. So it's very, very natural. So the dissolving happens when everything gets burned. It just naturally dissolves, it goes away, and you have zero uh, artist tokens anymore. I want to ask you guys about, you know, I'm jumping a few steps here. Simon, I saw you tweeting earlier this morning about. You know, universal basic income. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, humans in the future, you know, we won't need jobs because we'll be doing poetry and art and, you know, stuff that we uniquely can do. And here we are talking about how, you know, DAOs will do art better than humans. I'm curious how you think about, you know, and I'm a, I'm a freestyle rapper. I'm worried about losing my, losing my job or losing my, you know, skill set to, uh, to AI. H- how do you think about, how do you think about the role of humans in the future? That's <laughs> a good question. I, you know, I, I think my my belief is that whether we want to or not, we are moving into a world where software is going to replace a lot of what we do, a lot of a lot of what constitutes work or labor. But you know, in a society like a lot of work and labor, what it results in is that it allows people to play what I say, what I call status games, right? So if you have money, you have more status, and that's you know, work and labor is still somewhat seen as the proxy for status games, besides it being for the work itself, but also like the money you get from, from doing this. So I feel like, you know, it might not be like the super hippie version of the future where there won't be any money involved. There will still be some ways in which society or humanity will want to play status games. But what we need to do is what we need to shift out of is that the reliance on status games being on like labor and like work being done and rather just directly towards what we feel is to what we feel is valuable contributions from society. So in the industrial era where like your value to society was simply how many work you did per day, right? But now we can say like, listen, actually, I don't feel like this person working 40 hours a week is necessarily a better person than this artist, but this artist has no money. This person working for your hours a week has money. I feel like there's a disconnect here and that disconnect is growing due to the leverage of information sharing. And so now we have people that are 
content, everyone's a content creator. They're posting photos on Instagram. They're tweeting. They're blogging. They're sharing information. They're consuming information at the mass, more massive scale. They're curators. But none of these things are actually making people money, even though we feel these are valuable contributions to society. So whatever economic models we have should move towards saying, this is a valuable contribution to society. And I feel like you should, you should deserve some value for this, whatever that value is. And that's what get back to the point where we can say, cool, this is this, this is the new sort of status game that society is playing. This is a, an attention economy or a, or information economy. Yeah. You talked a lot about monetizing attention. I guess I'm curious, do we think that status or social capital will become much more positive sum in the future? And how do we think that translates to financial capital? That's that's an interesting question because ultimately, like attention isn't zero sum, but but sorry, attention is zero sum. So it's hard to reason that it might become more than more than zero sum. I need I need I need to think about that one more. Um, Uh, Maybe I can I can jump in here. Like going back to the UBI thing, right? I think you know with universal income, the idea is to decouple uh, work from self actualization, right? Such that you know, you don't have to worry about can you feed your family while well, you grow yourself and you, you the, the the people around you, right? So if you're an artist or a musician or a writer or a scientist or anything, um, you can pursue those interests and society can reward you implicitly, you know, re- reputation-wise, otherwise. But uh, you don't have to make money in order to, to feed your family. And, you know, this is uh, the dream of, you know, this is possible potentially with UBI and there's challenges about how to pay for that. I have some ideas that actually relate to AI DAOs. But this is also uh, actually a more pressing concern than you might realize because of AI coming along, right? You know, people have talked about AI taking jobs, and there's an argument back and forth: Are they going to take jobs? Yes or no? Will will be jobs be replaced enough? And yes, humans will drive AIs to to do things. You know, this is what you know. I, I CAD tools I built for circuit design was basically you know humans driving AIs to design things. However, I think actually that. You know, AI is going to take away more jobs more quickly than jobs are, are created, right? And a great example is, you know, self-driving trucks on their own, which are already on the road, are going to actually replace all the truck driver jobs in America, right? That's 3 million jobs. And it's not only going to do that, these truck drivers that need to stay in hotels and go to gas stations in middle America, all of that is going to get decimated. So this is going to like be a pretty big societal upheaval. In, and this is just America alone, right? And you know, those people aren't going to sit on their hands. They're going to be pretty frustrated with how things are going. And I see that UBI can actually help to offset some of this societal upheaval and to help transition to, you know, more of an, uh, an economy that can be sort of, you know, not relying on scarcity, but instead, you know, where you can, um, you know, self-actualize. And the key to this all is something like, you know, universal basic income, where people are able to, to feed their families and ideally even not just have basic income, but uh, enough to sort of self-actualize. So higher up in Maslow's hierarchy, right? Blockchains get, can actually play a big role here where uh, distribution side is easy, right? Anyone who has signed up with sort of proof of human can be getting some of the, the money flowing into a, a blockchain and there's projects related to that. And then on the income side, you know, how, how do you, where does the money come from? There's some roles where uh, AI DAOs can help there um, with things like self-driving cars, self-owning cars. They, once those cars have paid themselves off, they can start distributing to some sort of UBI chain, right? So overall, you know, there's a really strong interaction between AI and blockchain and jobs and the future of work, etc. Talk about, you know, we were talking briefly about uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and we talk about collectibles. A lot of people, when they hear that, all they think of is, is crypto kitties and sort of dismiss it as a, as a game. And, 
or a silly and, and you know, something we're not even sure if CryptoKitties are even doing that well anymore. I guess I'm, I'm curious, or talk more about why collectibles, NFTs are game-changing and where you see, you know, future applications. I, 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 I love this. I, I love collectibles. I think, you know, uh, as humans, I'm not sure if, um, if, if AI or agents will care so much about it, but as humans, we are suckers for collectibles because collectibles are, we, we ascribe a lot of, not necessarily sentimental value, but the equivalent of it for a lot of things. Like we ascribe a lot of meaning towards our objects. And historically, collectibles have been a big part of that. Like Nick Zabo wrote a really good article, which to me just explains almost everything about the crypto space, which is, in which he talks about collectibles and why money came from collectibles. So I, I feel like collectibles is going to be very, very big going forward. And because we've reduced the, the sort of friction or barriers to entry to mint these things on like a very massive scale, but mint them in a way that they are immutable. They can be used in transitive environments from one thing to another, and they can be built upon. Like that is a holy grail for emergent behavior. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example, which I think people should start experimenting with is just minting collectibles for a proof of things that you did. That's all. Like, if you walk into a store, the store should give you a badge that said Simon was in the store today. That's it. <laughs> it might matter to you like very little, but just if it's just more than enough than the cost of minting it, it was a valuable thing to issue. Then the store can decide to do whatever with it, but then someone else can also use that information, give you something. Like if one store see, sees that you have another store's badge, you can go and say, well, why don't you come to us? We'll give you 25% off if you have a badge. Or what if a pet store owner's gives all the CryptoKitty owners discount because they, they're they clearly into pets, right? Because they own CryptoKitty. So there's like a lot of ways in which we can just like say to people, just start issuing, issuing collectibles for everything. Like the barrier to entry to do this is so low. Just like, just if you don't think it would be useful or not, just issue it anyway and then see if it becomes valuable. This is you have so much upside to issuing these things then there's very little downside to doing so. It's just, just do more. And I think people are just still sort of thinking it in context of like it, it might be for useful for gaming, like cross cross game gaming or, or collectibles that way. But just it could be for everything. Now, that's what I want to see. Shoot. And I think it's going to get very interesting in that sense. Yeah, and I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, like basically a lot of these ideas have been tossed around for years and, you know, different prototypes or projects working on it. But the friction has really gone down because of these new specs that have emerged, especially in the last year, right? All these ERC specs and EIPs are are really helping to, you know, make it just that much easier to, to, uh, for projects to create these. And because of this also, we have interoperability where you can have specs building on specs building on specs. And a great example there is crypto, uh, the NFT composables, right? Uh, from Matt Locker and stuff where you can have a crypto kitty that is attached to, say, a ball. And then that crypto kitty has a ball and, um, these things are locked together and you can buy them together, right? So you can have sort of these hierarchies mm-hmm. of things. And sometimes even, you know, maybe someone sells you a crypto kitty and, you know, Dimitri Dijon had this idea of like, give it a disease, right? No one went that, but you could actually lock these things together. So things can emerge in funny ways too, right? And, you know, it, it's, and it's not just like the fun side, but also, you know, towards badges, et cetera. And it, it's not a frivolous thing necessarily. Like art has ha- played an essential role in society for, you know, the, the whole history of society, right? Where, you know, artists, et cetera, are really great at asking questions, sort of 
uncovering uh, the truths that are, aren't spoken of otherwise and exposing them in ways that kind of hit us in the gut, right? And make us ask new questions and research new, new, new solutions to the problems. So, you know, th- these NFTs and all the sort of token designs around it will help to uh, unlock that within the world of crypto and to the broader mainstream. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are asking questions like, is blockchain necessary for, for this? <laughs> and you know, one example is we're talking briefly about prediction markets. Prediction markets have been around for a long time. How does the blockchain sort of uniquely enable them in a way that they weren't before? There's there's a few things to me that's important. One is that you you can have the the fact that you can own it outright. I think that that's valuable. The fact that it is a timestamp proof of something that happened at a certain time is especially useful for like patronage collectibles, like where you had proof that you were actual fan at. You, you bought a, like a fan badge in 2016, for example. And then the interoperability between, between various components, the reliance on other intermediaries. And I think that the, the value from a developer comes from the fact that you can play around with this in a permissionless way and, and the emergence it provides, knowing that whatever you build today, it's one, it's, it's possible. Like you don't have to string together some H, like HTTP APIs and whatever that makes it work. But then also that you know that there's a certain amount of belief that this is going to last for a reasonable amount of time. That this isn't just a startup that's going to go down in the next two years and get, gets bought by Facebook or whatever. So I think there's a lot of valuable ways in which this, this, this is different to, to just having someone with a database or 10 cents doing something like this, you know? Yeah. And I say those are, those are really great examples and a couple more to add to that. One of them is, in the world of art, provenance is everything. So if you go and buy a painting, but you have no idea where it came from and stuff, it's basically hardly worth anything. You know, the collectors don't, don't care. But if you actually know, you know, if there's some strong history of ownership of where that came from or of, you know, who, who just even held it, that matters. And with, with blockchain, you get built in provenance, you know, that's secure, immutable, all this. So that's a, that's a big one. And not just for art, but, you know, a broader set of, of tokens and collectibles. The other one, which to me, I think this is sort of the superpower of blockchains and that's incentives, right? You know, blockchains are essentially incentive machines where you can sort of come up, you can ask yourself, what do I want people to do today or do in this network? And then you can set things up such that they're incentivized to do those things either explicitly or implicitly. And, and then they'll do them. And, you know, they get that, they get paid in tokens. Canx, for example, a bonding curse, like we talked about, can actually help to do this where, you know, as you buy and sell tokens, there, there can be, you know, payment to the artist, uh, a fraction of that and a whole bunch of other things. Like, you know, basically that's the art turning into an engineering discipline of sort of a token mechanics is, you know, what incentives are you trying to design towards, you know, what value, what what sort of emergent effects you want happening in the network. And, you know, so the blockchains as incentive machines is wildly powerful, and that is a completely new thing compared to before. I think on this point of incentive you know, the more, the longer I am in the space, like, the more I, like, ex- like my mind keeps extrapolating on what could become possible. And in one way, it still feels like we're at the precipice of just like enormous, enormous change in that sense. But I have to admit, like, and I think we, we've spoken this about before in various times, even with the, the, block, the Koala blockchain workshops where they explicitly had these discussions. Like, I, I'm like, I'm still somewhat worried to, to a certain extent of what we're inventing. You know, it's a sense of, like you said, this is a standard machine. You can say, what do I want, what do I want people to do tomorrow? And you can just write a piece of code that's a few lines and publish it through Ethereum and, and boom, you have people doing things. I mean, Bitcoin is the perfect case, for example, that a white paper was published and now you have people 
spending billions on infrastructure and mining electricity just because someone wrote a few lines of code. And it, it's not all utopian, I feel. Uh, it sometimes yeah. makes me work. I fully agree, right? And yeah, you know, Bitcoin is sort of like this AI paper that maximizes that people have talked about <laughs> that sort of, you know, man- converts the whole world in paperclips. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's basically, you know, eating the energy of the world, you know, by mid next year, it's on track to use more energy than all of USA. And it's like, oh, wow. Oh, crap. Right. So I think it's, we have this wildly powerful new tool that can be used for good or bad. It's a super, um, sharp double-edged sword on, on both directions, right? And just like, you know, Dynamite, from which, you know, the Nobel Prize was, you know, created by the inventor of Dynamite and many other examples, right? And I think society hasn't, even the creators, you know, engineers in the blockchain space haven't really fully dropped this yet. Many have, but, you know, it needs to be more broadly disseminated that, like, this tool is way more powerful than you think, right? It's sort of like knowing you have an atom bomb but a, and nuclear energy, good nuclear energy, if you can, but without realizing it, right? Like, we've got this just wildly powerful tool. It's it's just much, much more powerful than people realize, and we have to be super thoughtful about this. And this is actually partly the motivation why Simon and I, I think, uh, keep riffing on the ArchDAO, um, simply because it's a smaller sort of thing to help people realize the broader ramifications. You know, we build this, we learn how it works, we see sort of how we can accumulate wealth, and then from that, you know, generalizing to more broad AI DAOs, and other DAOs um, and other sort of blockchain incentive machines where, you know, the discussion can happen, especially around ethics and responsibility and so on. You know, this is, you know, maybe the most important topic of all, right? Yeah, I mean, how do we, so how should we think about it slash how should we be designing to protect against it, you know, to protect ourselves, I guess, or is it sort of a thing where, hey, it's it's going to happen and just let's be reactive. What, what should we do? What do you, what do you sort of advise it? That's hard. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to reason myself out of the perspective that it, I, that is somewhat nihilistic in a sense that if much of these things is going to be invented at some point in time, whether it's, you know, Trent and I working on this or someone else in the next five years doing it, much of this is going to happen in some form. So, you know, the question is what can we do about it? And sometimes it feels like not much really. Like if, if, if we're going to be as humans, like, sucker for these incentive games then what what like are we even capable of stopping any of it like what if there's like a you know i've also had to say like a idea for like a, a, i was thinking about nefarious DAOs, and and one use case of a nefarious DAO, it like let's say a nefarious DAO comes to exist that it starts doing things that ne- negatively in- impacting people like it's incentivizing people incentivizing people to kill other people right then the problem the problem is that those people that are siding with this nefarious DAO will try to make sure that people aren't say forking a blockchain to take out this DAO or whatever. So you essentially then the system that incentivizes people to basically form tribes and like kill each other. Uh and that's like a nefarious nefarious potential outcome that could happen when these sort of uh, these tribes form. So in some ways it feels like much of it could be inevitable. But I'm not that nihilistic. <laughs> I think there are still potential ways and that we can mitigate some of these potential issues into the future. And I think just the the basic fact that is that just talking about it, I think that's that's a good valuable first step to saying, listen, like you might think this is just fun and games, like, you know, programming is funny, like incentive game and it's suddenly crazy things happen. Just just to be more aware. To be more more aware of what's possible, you know? 
Yeah, and I think uh, you know, I think there is no silver bullet, but you know, it's very irresponsible to say, "Oh, it's just code. We're just putting this out there. I'm just playing around." Right? Yeah. It's a lot more than that, right? Like blockchain technology and AI. They're of all the technologies out there, they're probably the ones that are most deeply infused with ethical choices. So every sort of single line mm-hmm. you, you write and deploy actually is making an ethical judgment call, right? Which is kind of crazy to think about, right? So it's not just code. It's these machines that are interacting with humans and human incentives and so on. And so that said, you know, um, so conversation and getting the word out and people understanding and thinking about this is really, really important right now. I think there are some tactics that, you know, we already recognize are going to be helpful. Things like, okay, well, if something is really bad, maybe you can fork, you know, like Simon hinted that. Although if you have, a, say, a, a nefarious DAO, it might, you know, prevent that, etc. Uh, other times, you know, if you have, say, an ArchDAO that can generalize and starts, you know, doing some bad things, then you, you can probably hard fork away from that. Or if you have on-chain governance, then that could be shut down somehow, right? So that's a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for the near term. However, that will change over time, too. Like, right now, most of the interactions we have uh, with blockchains are humans interacting with blockchains. But in the future, mm-hmm. instead of sort of 100% humans, 0% bots interacting, it could be 99% bots, 1% humans, right? And then those bots, you know, they aren't going to be thinking at all about like, is this good for humans or not? Um, is this hurting people? Yes or no, et cetera. So it's, we, we only have kind of a limited time to think about this. You know, the scenario of 99% bots could be as soon as five or 10 years from now, right? But maybe there'll be really dumb bots just like right now. You know, there's lots of bots operating on ad exchanges, you know, traditional web 2.0 ad exchanges. And that's not a big deal, right? So they're kind of on the side. It's not really central to the sort of decision making of the web. So maybe it'll be like that in the future too, but. I have a feeling, a funny feeling it won't be. So this is just a discussion we need to keep having and asking about what are the tools we, we can have. But, you know, we can't put our head in the sand and say, okay, we're going to have good AI, we're going to have good DAOs, because all it takes is one person or entity to create something that's not so good, and we will have to deal with it as a society. Yeah, I think I'm curious, because you guys are such you know futurists and sort of thinking about this from so many different perspectives. I don't know if you guys have kids, but if you do, or if you, let's say you will have kids soon, like, what do you... How do you envision their world might be very different than I envision my kids' world might be different, or, or the average person envisions their kids' world might be different? I have kids, uh, age four, six, and six, and I, I think a lot about this, right? Like, what future am I helping to create for my children, and how are they going to be living, and so on? And, you know, broadly speaking, I see that blockchain itself has the, has the potential to rewire the power structures of society. And that could be for good or for bad, depending. You know, it's sort of a very malleable medium, right? And I really, really hope that it's for good. And, you know, I'm doing as much as I can to help nudge that and shift that in the right ways. You know, every every sort of organization, uh, government, corporation, all that could be tokenized in the future 10, 20, 30 years from now. And hopefully it won't be, you know, the old kings becoming new kings or new people becoming new kings. But instead, you know, the, the power is spread, the wealth is spread, etc. And... So for, for my children, I, I think about what sort of sort of substrate of civilization can they live on such that they can self-actualize, right? Such that they can, you know, grow up to be whoever they want to be to, you know, change multiple careers or not even have sort of a career in the traditional sense and just, you know, create value to themselves and society and grow as humans, right? And, you know, right now we're kind of at a crossroads in sort of society again where we have this wildly powerful new tool. And it could end up where it biases towards like really dark things or it biases towards really positive things. And, you know, we all, all of us in the blockchain space have to understand this and we have to really try to, to bias towards, you know, a positive futures for ourselves and for our children and their children. I, I don't have kids, but, uh, I recently became a godfather. My son had a baby, but, uh, it, it did make me think more deeply about the future. I, I think, you know, even in our lifetime, not even this, not even our kids' lifetimes is that 
we're going to be in for like a lot of lot of lot of interesting times. Uh, the way you should describe it is to say, you know, things are going to get a lot weirder, a lot weirder in many ways. And we're going to ask a lot of questions to ourselves as a society, like what it means to be human and what it means to live in this in this new and upcoming sort of exponentially growing economy and, and powerful technologies that we build for ourselves. And I think it's just going to be even more weirder for our kids. It's just going to be such a different world. And sometimes I'm not sure if, if as, as humanity, we're quite ready for that. I'm, I'm not sure. I think in some sense we will, we will just be, you know, we'll just accept the weirdness that comes. You know, when the web came about, people were like, this is going to be this great tool for academics. We're going to share information and share knowledge. And then the year 2018, people are sharing like SpongeBob memes, right? So it's like, it's like this unexpected way in which these things will maybe use in the future. And, you know, what if our kids one day are meme traders, right? That, that's completely possible career choice from our current 2018 perspective. So it's going to get weirder. And I, I, I hope that the sort of feedback loops that we're currently designing in society doesn't cause everything to like blow up. You know, it feels like there's like a few roads that you can take from here that will lead to a more prosperous and abundant society. And I hope we, we take the right ones and everything doesn't just blow up. <laughs> Say more about sort of like how, how it can get weird. Like meme traders is one example. Like what are other sort of explicit manifestations of, of it getting weird? One way to sort of rip on the, you know, the AI DAO, the art DAO, right? So the art DAO is, um, an autonomous entity running around creating art, creating wealth. But you don't have to start with, stop with art creating things, right? You can have a self-driving car that also happens to own itself, right? Like maybe, you know, Daimler manufactures it. And then, um, over the span of five years, it's, it becomes its own Uber driver and buys itself back, you know, with a leasing plan from Daimler, right? So you've got this car driving around. It's its own corporation. It has personhood. It has rights and it, it owns itself, right? And of course you can, so you have this self-driving, self-owning car. If, you know, if it needs repairs, it just contracts out a tow truck to come and pick it up, et cetera, right? And, you you know, you have one car, two cars, a whole fleet of cars, and maybe you have a sort of a macro entity that starts buying these up too, and maybe it's its own AI DAO. And fleets of cars, fleets of trucks, and then you have, you know, self, self-owning roads, right? So right now, roads are created by governments, which pool together um, resources from a bunch of taxpayers, and then they go and build those roads, right? Well, um, in the future, any community, it could be the cars, it could be humans, pool together resources to build a road, to build a power grid, all of this. And so over time, we could actually have sort of the infrastructure around us, all these atoms that we use to interact with the world from, you know, from, you know, tra- transit to energy to food, all of this. This could be actually a whole bunch of independent agents that, um, you know, are, are self-owning, they're autonomous to whatever degree necessary, like with AI, but autonomous, at least for the self-owning part, and interacting in their own ways. And if you think about it, this is, uh, you know, pause that for a second and think about like it's sort of nature 1.0, you know, what's a tree, right? It's kind of taking in resources like sunlight and, and moisture and, and CO2 and outputting oxygen and, and growing wood, manufacturing wood, all these things, right? And it's doing it kind of its own, own thing. It doesn't, it's sort of this autonomous thing and forests and broader ecosystems and so on, as well as, you know, lions and bears and mosquitoes and all this, right? And so that's sort of a nature 1.0. And, but how, how I see sort of towards this weird future, you, we have a put the potential for a nature 2.0 where you have these AI DAOs that are enabling, you know, self-driving cars and swarms of self-driving cars and cell phone power grids, self-owning forests like Terra Zero, et cetera. 
And this is sort of a, you know, potentially new infrastructure for civilization. So humans don't have to worry about potentially this next layer. It's just these, these things around us that are, that are helping us sort of this cradle of civilization. Just like nature 1.0 is a cradle of civilization, nature 2.0 can be that too. So that's kind of a positive framing. It's, you know, weird, but it's a positive way to see how things could go, right? And to me, a really nice vision of, you know, a slice of um, what blockchain can help unlock. That's awesome. So something from my side is I saw you write about it. And when I say that I, I write about something, so I also need like fully like, like think this through and interrogate this idea. But I have the sense that there might be likelihood of something developing in the next five to 10 years, what I call reality registers. And the concept comes from an extrapolation about the way people are consuming information in the, like the year 2018. And, you know, this concept of there being fake news, right? So increasingly, it's going to become easier to fake any kind of digital content, like off the shelf, very easy to fake. And you could make Donald Trump say whatever he wants, and you could just post it and pretend that that happened and that was real, right? So increasingly, anything that we see on our screen will be harder to trust that it actually happened in reality. And so if it's separate from that, is how do we solve that? One way... One way this extrapolation works is to say, okay, well, this is going to be an issue in the future and there's going to be a big event where something like this happens and a nation state is going to say, shit, like, this was a problem. We need to solve this. How are we going to do this? And they'll say, cool, any kind of media that's produced by the presidency of the United States is signed by a digital signature. And the United States as a digital key that they use to sign this media that happens. That's anything from them is trusted media. But when you start with from there, then how do you trust the key? Because the key could also be eventually forged or it could be hacked. And then it, you, you're just kicking the can down the road to eventual problem where something could be forged again in the future. And so you'll get this case where people say, I as society or a group of people believe that a specific key is the key that is owned by the presidency of the United States and that everything that is signed by that key is a believable truth. Unless you were actually there in physical reality, that's the only way you can trust anything from a media perspective happening. But then you will realize that you can extrapolate that to any anything that happens in reality. So we'll have these sort of web of trust of keys, like trusting other keys and signing things that are happening in the real world in order to trust it in the digital space. And now when you tie in the incentive games on top of that, you're starting intentionally incentivizing people to like commit to sort of digital realities of what happened in the real world. And it might be the case that due to like political or ideological lines, people might actually start trying to fake physical reality and then prove that it's a certain truth and they'll be incentivized to do so. So you get this like weird future where, you know, everyone is sort of trying to figure out what is actually happening in the real world, but they don't really know and they only trust the people they are close to to figure out what actually happened in the real world. So reality itself will become probabilistic. Like, if the president yeah. said something, you could only believe in, like, an 80% chance that it happened. <laughs> and, and to riff on that, right, like, uh, that, that's a really cool vision. And to riff on that, going to be things like, you know, augmented reality goggles, where that where we wear them, they will repaint the world in front of us, right? And it's sort of like, so our reality, you know, normally we see what we see in front of our eyes is, is, the, is the truth, right? But what if we're walking around? And everything we see, you know, basically maybe people get erased from, uh, we don't see them as they walk down the street and stuff, right? Just because they're maybe turned into like nulls in society or something. 
And, you know, that's an example of, of potentially a very negative thing. There's a lot more, though, too. But it's interesting, you know, if you think about our brains, uh, there is no such thing as reality. It's just sort of like what model our brain is constructed of the world, right? And we only have little, tiny little holes to peek into the world to see what's going on via our eyes and our ears. And then everything else is our own belief that is constructed in this world model. So, you know, the digital world is a physical world. It's the same thing. And, but that actually poses problems because, you know, what, what is, where do atoms end and bits begin and vice versa? But I think what, what Simon describes is actually a great potential solution, which is, it's about this web of trust of various beliefs. And so it's, Basically, how, how do you interact? How does how do you let your world model interact with someone else's world model? Interact with someone else's world model based on the perceptions and the beliefs that you have. And you know, the truth is much more subjective, much more probabilistic, as Simon put it. So yeah, typically will be like you know, if something didn't happen if it wasn't on the blockchain. <laughs> this exactly. Deep like borderline hyper reality future. <laughs> yeah, and, and that that is a profound, by the way. Like I love that statement when you first tweeted it that time, and it's like, oh wow, this is actually the future. So, and even if it's on the blockchain, it's still a claim, right? So that's the first yeah. step, and then it has to get validated, validated by you know your web of trust around you, right? So it's sort of like filter bubbles uh, of today's society yeah. taken to the nth degree. Curious how you guys think about you know how we'll think about identity and reputation in an increasingly blockchain world. You know, one question I've had is what is what does social scalability for identity look like? I was just talking to some entrepreneurs working on a project where it's trying to basically subdivide people's identities or reputations in the sense of, you know, Mark Andreessen has a crypto reputation and then he has a politics reputation. And if his politics reputation suffers because he says a quote about colonialism in India, his technology reputation doesn't suffer as a result of it instead of sort of the bundle we have right now. That's, that's just one sort of, you know, application or thought as it relates to identity of reputation. But what are your thoughts on the topic? You know, there's been lots of thoughts and writing on this over the years. Probably one of the, I guess the first point in contact for me is from a reputation perspective, Cory Doctorow wrote this wonderful book more than 10 years ago called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. And it showed how sort of a global reputation system can basically like, where it's sort of tokenized is super negative, right? Where you have one reputation for everything, you can live, literally live and die by your, your reputation, right? And so we want to make sure that like that's something definitely to avoid. So whenever I, you know, run across people who are doing tokenized reputation systems, I ask, like, please don't make it explicit tokens for reputation. Please, please, please. Cause like, we don't want to end up with, you know, the scenario there with Woofy. And, you know, there's a Black Mirror episode, a similar idea. So there's been actually some really thoughtful stuff in the blockchain space around this. It's sort of those local reputation systems like Metanfeld and Primavera de Filippi did with Backfeed. Um, you know, that's since morphed into the DAO stack stuff. But uh, they did have local reputation there and, you know, reconciled with the Corey's concerns, etc. And there's other uh, work out there, too, where it's things like OS coin, which is, you know, figuring out a way to compensate developers without trying to do it explicitly because, you know, people are contributing open source, not for the money, but for uh, reputation, essentially, right? So there, there's, on the rep- reputation side, uh, it's something that you don't want to have reward extrinsically. It has to be so, sort of more intrinsic side. Just very quickly on identity, you know, the baseline is your identity is your public key, right? You know, you can show that you have that identity if you can demonstrate with your, your private key, right? So that's kind of the baseline. And more recently, you know, there's work out of Rebooting Web of Trust and the Decentralized Identity Foundation and W3C, but the roots are Web of Trust for something called DID, the Decentralized Identity. It's a standard. And it's sort of like generalization of, of public keys that allows you to switch public keys over time and a few other really nice things. And it's really basically a public key that has resources attached, that it has sort of permissions to, to it can give permissions to those resources. And that's a really, really nice baseline for the future. So for me, 
that is sort of the identity of the future. You have this DID with resources attached, and that would work for humans. You know, Trent McConaughey is then um, a DID that happens to have a resource attached of the, the meat bag cell, um, body that is Trent McConaughey's body, right? Or a self-driving car is the sort of like DID that happens to have a car body attached, and maybe over time it acquires another car and another car, right? So that's sort of the baseline from which we work, and everything else sort of emerges from there. And it's not a topic that I've given too deep thought about. Uh, it's only recently when I started thinking about it again, when someone asked me what I thought about, like, UBI, going back to the UBI topic, was is that reputation Reputation is the same thing in money if you think of them both as just giving you options. So money is a broad, it's a broad fungible reputation, right? So you can, like, spend it in various ways and it's fungible, but the traditional reputation is just it gives you access and opportunity or options in more specific contexts. Like if you know if someone knows that I'm a musician, it gives me access to go to like, you know, go play at someone's studio and play music with them. If someone knows that I'm a writer, then they can interact with me in various ways. It opens up options for me in different ways, uses like my various facets of different reputation. And that's that's the current like kind of way of reason about reputation um, in that sense. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how it's going to develop into the future. And that's just like one of my current thinking about it. Well, actually, sorry, one thing in there, actually, implicitly, blending curves uh, and reputation are very related as well, right? Basically, the more reputation that a meme has, it, it's, you know, or the more people have invested into a meme or a song or anything on a blending curve, sort of implicitly the more reputation it has. So they're a bit of a proxy for each other. It's not a fully one-to-one mapping, but they really, really good. Talk about, you know, one topic you've, you've written quite a bit about it is token curated registries, TCRs. Oh, what are they and why are they so game-changing? Well, uh, TCRs sort of broadly fall into like a broader space of things that have started developing in, in, the, in like sort of token engineering and, and curation market sense, which is, you know, the usage of tokens to curate information and in the context of a TCR it is a set of incentive games that essentially tries to ensure that it brings about a set of curators that curate a list to the extent that the list is that the list maintains a certain kind of quality that it aims to attain and so a good example is you know someone using a TCR to curate what's like good restaurants globally and so there's this game that's been, this binary game that's being played of being in and out. But since that was first published in like September 2017, there's been so much innovation happening in a very short space of time where people have taken the idea and ran with it from like graded TCRs, layered TCRs, nested TCRs, people writing stuff about its economy sizes, bootstrapping them, different ways to vote and curate. It's been quite fascinating to see. And I think the reason why people like it and why they, they gravitated towards it is that it, it, it's a very powerful crypto economic primitive because of the fact that, you know, access lists and lists in general just is a very big part of society in general. And being able to create these lists in a way that doesn't rely on central institutions, but rather just a set of incentive games, that's very useful. And I think you know, when people say smart contracts, that's like to me like the first definition of what it actually entails, like a very useful combination of, of games that comes to essentially producing a valuable list. Yeah, and kind of riffing on that, right? It comes, it goes back to our earlier conversation about uh, lowering friction. TCRs are the sort of building block for, for crypto that 
once you are aware of that that concept and you can you know go and grab the code from you know add chain code or otherwise then you can just use it right so um you have that sort of symbol in your head of, uh, of a building block you can use and deploy and you know a very good chunk of projects on ethereum and otherwise now are simply are using tcrs and that's all they need right um and i think that's great right you can have just the simple crypto economic primitive the simple building block and just deploy you know add chain they uh they, they have this whole ad exchange but all they need on chain is simply this list, this whitelist of good websites. That's it, right? Everything else can be off chain, et cetera, et cetera. So something simple and elegant that can be deployed. And like someone said, you know, there's this growing set of building blocks around it, sort of composing them in various ways, you know, compositions of, of TCRs, um, linked in various ways or, or, um, bonding curves and so on. And it's kind of cool because it feels a lot like the late nineties where these design patterns were being created for software engineering, right? Things like the factory pattern and uh, et cetera, et cetera, they were getting compiled into a wiki uh, pattern repository, and that led to basically this sort of new field of software engineering. And you know, books were written about it, and that gave sort of a common language to um, software engineers, such that they can reuse each other's components, have different implementations of these things, and so on. And that's exactly what's happening now in the world of token engineering. You know, in in building up um, these various building blocks and deploying them to systems in sort of a repeatable fashion. And that really helps for security. It really helps for reliability, all of this. One way to reason about CCRs and why I think it's valuable is that, you know, it it, it has blown up quite substantially and there's quite a lot of hype around it. But I, I think there's very, very like useful space in which they are better than anything that has existed be- before that society had available. And in, because you can basically curate a list of things that could be used in many ways. So, but the, the space where it's valuable is not in a space of where we can just self-regulate. Like if you are like 10 to a hundred people in an industry and you want to self-regulate, it's still relatively easy due to the scope of what needs to be done to self-regulate that say, this is a self-regulating industry, right? That is enough of that's like the amount of people is low enough, right? But then you get to the point where self-regulation becomes hard, hard to do and hard to maintain and hard to, like, the incentives involved doesn't necessarily allow self-regulation to work effectively because that does invariably happen after some point, like when the scope of self-regulation gets too big. But then you are in this sort of chasm where self-regulation stops and the only way we can introduce some kind of regulation into a system that produces valuable outcomes is you have to go right to the end where it's like you have to use the nation state to regulate things. So, but then in between self-regulation and regulation through the nation state, there is this gap of things that are useful and um, which people can use TCRs to like regulate information and curate information that's valuable to society as a whole. And that's where I think people need to really think about TCRs is don't think about these small use cases and, and think about the gap between like self-regulation and the regulation that the nation state provides. That's like the holy grail where these things I think will be very valuable. Very cool. Guys, uh, last question for, for, for you. Uh, you know, we're talking from Trent, you're in Berlin, Simon, South Africa. We, what is the, the future of sort of distribution in terms of influence and, and power as it relates to crypto? You know, it seems that San Francisco doesn't have any sort of inherent advantages the way they do in sort of traditional web 2.0. How do you think about the geographic di- di- distribution of, of power and opportunity in crypto? I think actually, you know, the world has, or the tech world has long dreamed of sort of a, a global tech ecosystem. And frankly, it hasn't really happened uh, with traditional industries. Even, you know, there was dreams of the web becoming more spread out and stuff. 
But I, I see that blockchains, by their very nature, you know, they're jurisdictionless, permissionless. They don't know where borders end and begin. And so, and we're seeing actually with blockchain that it has become a, a global tech ecosystem, right? There is no one center of the universe for, for blockchain. And I think that's really wonderful, right? You know, you can be a, a coder in, in rural Canada. I'm calling from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan right now, actually. Um, and you can actually have just as much influence as a coder in Silicon Valley and build up a network around you and so on. Um, because really it's people interacting online and so on. Now that said, um, there is use in having, you know, a, a good group of people around you to help build things like face to face. But the global, uh, crypto ecosystem, people do travel probably more than tra traditional and conferences, like to different conferences for, you know, Ethereum community events or broader blockchain events and so on. And I think that's really valuable. So to me, it is sort of a seismic shift from sort of one center of power and influence for tech. To really the world's first truly global tech ecosystem and the tech technology itself is helping to propel this. I'm very proud of, you know, working out of Berlin too. There's great, great people there, but there's also, you know, awesome people in Cape Town and, you know, London and New York. And there are some great teams in San Francisco too, but it's just not dominant, right? And to me, that's really healthy for the world just to sort of spread power and wealth and so on. And that's really, you know, why are we all here with, with blockchain? It is really about, you know, re restructuring the power structures of society to have, you know, greater opportunities for everyone, to um, more level the playing field, to be better spread the power in the world. Yeah, I think uh, that's absolutely true. And I think it's really great the way it's moving. Uh, and I think there's there's a confluence of things that led it to where it is now. And I think, you know, when when the tech world started and, and, and rose up to prominence and when the web came to prominence, it was because you kind of still relied on like physical things like people and and, and money to actually build the infrastructure to get where we are now. You know, now we have GitHub that exists. Now we have globally access to quite fast internet. We have, but like GitHub is there, collaboration tools are there, global access to internet. And now the final piece of the puzzle is that you're moving away funding from being reliant on networks, networks of people. So, you know, I don't have to be in Silicon Valley anymore and know how to get a hot intro to a VC on Sandy Hill Road. That's unnecessary for me as an entrepreneur anymore. There are not other ways in which I can do the same thing, you know, whether it's through start doing a blockchain, launching a blockchain network or something like that. We don't the sort of globally, you don't need that specific access anymore to do what you want to do. So all these things together, I think it's, it's only the start of it, really. I think it's only starting now once. Once blockchain itself as well has brought that infrastructure to a mature level, then that's going to be like the sort of golden era of tech as a global movement. And we, we have like three or four of these components, but like the last one, it's like just a fully functioning blockchain ecosystem. And this only started in earnest last year, uh, maybe the past two years. So we're almost there. And I think it's already showing that that's possible. So I'm quite excited to see that happening. Agreed, agreed. Actually, one way to sort of also sort of rec describe this, Nick Zabo wrote this wonderful article about social scalability where, you know, how do you get beyond that first 50 or 150 people where they're sort of working with each other in a way where they can collaborate well? And, you know, we have limitations like Dunbar's number, you know, 150 people, group size, et cetera. And, you know, if you're in one place, then you can get trust that way because you kind of can see each other face to face, work interactively. But the cool thing about blockchains is that, you know, in calling them trust machines, it's about minimizing the trust you need among the actors to make the overall system operate, right? And, and blockchain technology helps to really enable this and unlock it. And therefore, it can lead to much greater social scalability, i.e., you know, global scalability. And, you know, we're seeing that 
you know, this, so this trustlessness nature of blockchains is leading to, you know, global scale, social scaling. Cool. Mm-hmm. I, guys, I think that's a, that's an amazing way to wrap. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. There were a bunch of topics we didn't get to as well. I'll have to do another episode in the future, uh, if of interest. Thank you. This was, this was a ton of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it.